Okay, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to do uh, verses 21 through 30 this week. Before we do that, let's review uh, last week's uh, teaching. What are the two things spoken about in verses 13 to 20 that, that Jesus says we should be as Christians in this world? John? Salt and light. And what what are some reasons we talked about that Jesus would use the analogy of salt? What does salt do? John? Irritates. Irritates, yeah, definitely irritates. An open wound. Yes, Jenna? Heals. It heals, right? If it's allowed to do its work, it can heal. Goes in water. Yeah. Goes in water. Yeah. Purifies, okay, yeah. Purifies in water. Right? Daniel? Has a taste to it, a flavor to it. Right, seasons. It also preserves, right? Yeah. So, as Christians, we can be a preservationist world. It reminds me of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where if there were so many righteous people there, God would not have destroyed the uh, the uh, the two cities. It reminds me of Noah's flood, uh, how there was only very few righteous people in the whole world at that point in time. God destroyed the whole world because of how wicked they were. Uh, and in the end, it shall be in the days of Noah, and when Christ comes back, and He will destroy the wicked. We also talked about as being light. And is this light, letting our light shine, is this just doing good works before men and letting them see it? Is that all it is there is to it? If you do good works before men, but never open your mouth and say whose name you're doing it in, or open your mouth and tell them how they can be saved, who who are you giving glory who are they going to give glory to? To you. They're going to think, oh, he's such a good guy. What a good person she is. You never open your mouth for Jesus. Your light wasn't shown. Your light did not shine to them. We wanted to shine the Father's light. We wanted to shine Jesus' light. He is the light of the world. Remember, we used the analogy of the, the sun and the moon. Does the moon have any uh, illuminating properties by itself? No, it's just a piece of dirt in the sky. And we are made, ironically, from dirt. If you go back to Genesis, Adam was made from the dust of the earth. And we are made from the dust of the earth. And we shall return to the earth someday and Unless Christ is back first, and we will turn to dust as well. Return to dust. Why, if you you dig up uh, you know some bones today, you won't find any skin on it. It returns to the earth, it becomes a part of it again. And um, but we are just like the moon. We're to shine the sun, S O N, properly. For walking in the light, as he is in the light, we'll shine him properly, and we'll bring light where there is darkness. And the moon doesn't shine anything during the day, does it? Doesn't bring any illumination. It brings illumination during the night, which is what we should do: be in the darkness, shining the light. In what way did Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? There are many different ways we talked about. He fulfilled it. How did he fulfill? The perfect life. So he fulfilled the law by completely obeying the law. In what way did he fulfill the prophets? Right, fulfilled prophecies, that's right. And another way he fulfilled the law and the prophets is that he was taking the law and showing them the true heart of the law. That it wasn't just external obedience to certain commands. It's internal obedience. And what is the fulfillment of the law according to the rest of scriptures? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, can you externally obey a command but still not love your neighbor? Can you externally obey a command and still not love God? Can you externally obey a command to um, not kill someone but still disobey the command? Oh, you sure can in your heart, internally. So Jesus is going to the heart of the issue here, which is love. Loving God and loving your neighbor. And he completely loved everyone at all times. That's why when you hear people in the open air say, well, you don't love us, you're preaching to us about hell, you're telling us we're going to hell. Well, then I guess Jesus wasn't loving. He was loving at all times. And he talked about those things and told people those things. So those, those things are loving. Now, according to verse 19 of Matthew 5, who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? The ones who break God's commands and teach others to do the same. Yeah. Those are the least in God's kingdom. But those who obey and teach others to obey, with no excuses for not obeying, those are the ones who will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They should. It should shake you up. That's for sure. And then, of course, in verse 20, we said that... Uh, our righteousness must see the righteous scribes and Pharisees. And there's two ways we can do that. One, our passions are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And two, we walk in holiness before God. Internal obedience. Loving our neighbor and loving God. Not the obedience the Pharisees and scribes had, which is only external, but the internal obedience that Jesus is talking about, which we walk in holiness before Him. Alright, let's start in verse uh, 13. Let's, uh, verse 21, I'm sorry. And let's read through verse 30. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body be cast into hell. Okay, so verse 21 says... First, said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. In the Old Testament, um, you know, there were different kinds of murders. There was murder that was intentional, murder that was unintentional. Uh, the murder was done intentionally. If two or three witnesses would come forth, that person would be killed. Death penalty. Okay? Uh, if it was an involuntary murder, there was no premeditation in the person's heart. They had no prior hatred for the person they killed. Maybe... One example gives in Deuteronomy, 
um, let's say he's swinging an axe out in the woods and the axe head comes off and hits the guy in the head and he dies. It was unintentional. Uh, they actually had cities of refuge where they would send these people uh, until their trial. And if during their trial they were proven to be not guilty of intentional murder, they were to stay in that city of refuge until the high priest that was under, over them died and then they could come and live in the cities again. But if a person was uh, shown to be uh, an intentional murder, a person, the nearest of kin to the person who was murdered, would take up stones and kill him, and then everyone else would follow and step and kill him as well. So there was death penalty in those days for, for murder. Uh, but that's not the worst thing that can happen to a murder. The worst thing that can happen to a murder is they go to hell. That's the worst judgment you can receive. But even though murders are deserving of hell, doesn't God have mercy available for them as well? It blows my mind in the open air. People will say things like, uh, are you telling me that me, I've only lied, I've only done this, that, this, and that, and you, God won't forgive me, he won't let me into heaven, but this, this guy who's in a jail, who's been a serial murderer, and he, he gives his life to Christ, that he's, that he's going to go to heaven? Well, that's right, yeah, that's right. He, he's, he's admitted his crimes. He's humbled himself. Uh, God is willing, it doesn't matter how great someone's crimes are, God is willing and able to forgive them and have them come. And uh, the world is so warped in their thinking, <clears throat> they think that they deserve God's mercy automatically, no matter what, just because they've only done a few things, supposedly anyway. But this guy who's done lots of things, he doesn't deserve mer uh, mercy at all. And they got it backwards. You don't deserve God's mercy, and here does he, but God offers it all. So mercy is undeserving. And then Jesus uh, takes it to the intent of what God had behind thou shalt not murder. He's going down to this love issue again. Loving your neighbor and loving God. He says, But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And this reminds me of Ephesians 4.26. I was reading through this. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, oftentimes in the open air, when we're preaching, we'll get pretty passionate, and people will accuse us of being angry. And I'll say, you're, you're angry, you're sinning right now. And uh, I'll, I'll do a couple things. I'll first I'll point them to Ephesians 4.26, which says, Be angry and do not sin. So, according to this verse, you can be angry and not sin. So if that is true, is anger in itself sinful? No, it is not. And then I bring it to Jesus' example. There's times when Jesus was angry. In fact, two times that Jesus turned over the, tent, the tables in the temple court. Two separate occasions he did this. And he was angry. And the apostles said later on, they remember that zeal has eaten him up for his father's house. A verse that's from the Old Testament. They're reminded of what Jesus did in the temple courts. Jesus was angry. There were other times when Jesus was angry. John the Baptist was angry. Peter and Paul were angry at times. Um, this is when proof that they were being sinful. As long as your anger is not man's anger, which James talks about. Uh, because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. He be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and quick to listen. Okay, uh, But you can be angry and not sin. But that doesn't mean just because you are angry, you can quote this verse and say, I haven't sinned. You check your heart. Make sure you're not being sinful in your anger. Uh, you must have a righteous anger, just like Jesus had, if you're going to be angry at all. Okay, But listen to what it says at the end of verse 26 in Ephesians 4. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. If you're angry at someone, even if it's a righteous anger, whether it's your spouse or 
brother or sister or parent or, or a child, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't go to sleep angry. You know what will happen? You wake up with a bitter heart. Don't go to sleep angry. For children who aren't married yet, when you get married, this is a very good, important principle you need to learn before you get married. Because there will be times you're going to be angry at your spouse. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. You live with someone 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you're going to be angry at them sometimes. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't go to sleep angry at that person. And you'll see in a second, don't let them go to sleep angry at you. You know, get, get rid of this. You know, you know, have forgiveness and reconciliation. Okay? So it's okay to be angry, as long as there's a cause for your anger, according to verse 22. But you shouldn't let the sun go down on your anger. But anger itself is not sinful. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says to you, fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So Raka is an Aramaic term that's transliterated from the, the text to the English, Raka. And it simply means empty-headed. You're an empty head. You're, you're, you're good for nothing. And, uh, you know, we, 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 it's kind of funny to think about that because we, we, we jest. We do say things to each other in jest sometimes. But uh, if you're saying something like this to someone and you mean it, you're being mean and spiteful about this, it's showing your heart. Like you just said, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles man. What comes out of the mouth defiles man. Because what comes out of the mouth shows the overflow of the person's heart. And when you insult someone in spite, just to put them down, it shows your heart. that you have a murderous heart. Now, you may never actually commit the murder with the person, on the, the murder on the person you're insulting, but you have a murderous heart towards them. When you lash out at them and say mean things to them. And the law... It gets down to this issue, once again, of love. Now, can you call someone a mean name in spite and love them at the same time? Of course not. That's why you need to keep a tight ring on our tongue, as James says. And you fool. Now, this is not the same as calling an atheist what the Bible calls them, which they fool. Psalm 14.1. Uh, because in Psalm 14.1, we're describing what a person is like. In this situation, you're actually calling a person out of you're calling this person out of spite, out of anger. Uh, you're doing it to insult them. Okay, and if you're doing that, once again, you're showing your heart. And then Jesus says very clearly, it's not just those who commit murder who are in danger of hellfire, but those who show their heart towards a person who have not committed murder against them, they are in danger of hellfire. In fact, let me just read from First John three fifteen. And see what John, the beloved apostle, had to say about this issue. First John three fifteen says this: Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer heart. Now this this apply. I've, I've heard some Christians. Take First John three fifteen and say, "Well, this only applies to Christians. You can hate non-Christians; it'll be okay." Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we'll get to that here in a couple of weeks when we get further on in Matthew five, when Matthew five forty three, loving your enemies. Uh, but no, you can't hate anybody. 
You can't hate anybody. You have no right to hate anybody. Now God in his holy hatred, he does hate sinners. Psalm 5.5, five, Psalm 11.5, Psalm 7.11. He's all talking about these things. But his hatred is not like man's hatred. <laughs> See, God's love, God wants the best for all. He wants all to be saved, all to come to knowledge of truth, all to come to repentance. And that's why he sent his son, demonstrating his love towards them, that they can be forgiven of sin, that they come to him for cleansing and forgiveness and mercy. <laughs> but God's hatred is a, is a holy abhorrence for the way they're living their lives. Now, we should have that. We should have a holy abhorrence for the way sinners live their lives. We should have a holy abhorrence for the way we used to live our lives as sinners. And if we sin in the future, we should have a holy abhorrence then for the way we've, we've chosen to live. But we have no right to want the worst for anybody. God, in His great mercy, didn't want the worst for us. So in return, we shouldn't want that for anybody else. Now this, this word, hellfire, here. Let's discuss this a little bit. Uh, hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And of course, uh, the word fire here is the, the Greek word for fire. Uh, but Gehenna is the valley of Hinnom. And in the Old Testament, I'll give you some scripture references here. I'm not going to read them. I'll give you some references. In the Old Testament, this is the place where Ahaz, the wicked king, burned his sons in the fire. He put them in the fire. That's Second Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 3. King Ahaz, the wicked king, put his sons in the fire as an offering to the false god Moloch, which is spelled M-O-L-E-C-H. Moloch. Manasseh, another wicked king, did the same thing. Offered his sons as an offering to Moloch. Second Chronicles 33.6. And God strictly forbid this, of course, in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 21. So Gehenna was this place called, in the Old Testament called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom, this is what happened there. There was an idolatrous practice there of witchcraft, of offering your sons to the fire, kind of like what America does with, with uh, killing babies. Uh, but they offered on the, the altar of the God of convenience, on the altar of the God of, I want to go to school, on the altar of the God of, uh, I want my life. People were killed their children, their babies in their mother's womb. Now, these are children that have never been born, so they take it a step further, I guess you could say, uh, but it's still just as bad. They're still murder, still taking human life and offering up to a god, whether you call it Moloch or inconvenience or, uh, or the god of I want to go to school, the god of uh, I don't want any children, the god of uh, I want to be free, you know, whatever it may be. Or maybe it's the god of um, I don't want to take authority in my household and teach my children the ways of the Lord. Or maybe it's a god of uh, I don't want to spank my children. Maybe that's what you're offering. Now, now, you're not actually offering, in those situations, you're not actually offering your children to be killed, but you're doing something much worse. You're not training them in the way they should go, then you're offering up to the God of Satan. You're offering up to Him and saying, here, do what you want, Satan. I'm not going to train them. You train them. I'll let the world train them. I'll let the TV train them. And um, people offer up their children all the time. They're not taking responsibility like they're supposed to and training their children and raising them in the fear of the Lord, disciplining when it's needed, and teaching them the word of God. And in doing so, the Bible says they hate their children. They don't love their children. You know, in Hebrews 12, when, 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 well, I guess we don't know if the Apostle Paul wrote that book or not, but I'm, I'm going to assume he did for a second here. The Apostle Paul talks about the discipline of God versus disciplining your father. The, 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 so your father is disciplining you for a, sure, a period of time for your, for your good. 
And then God disciplines you for your good doing. He only disciplines those who we love. And if he doesn't discipline you, you're an illegitimate child. Let's bring it back to the human example. If a parent does not discipline their children, they are treating them like an illegitimate child. Like a child they don't care about. And they're not showing love to them. And that happens all the time. So we have this, this valley of Hinnom, Gehenna in the New Testament. In the New Testament times, during Jesus' time, it's a great word picture for actual literal hellfire. It was a garbage dump where all the refuge from the city went to this place called Gehenna and it was a continually burning fire. And what do you usually see? You know, oftentimes if I leave my garbage can, it's a little bit open and it's during the... What, what gets in there? The flies? And then what do flies do? Lay eggs. And then what do you have? Maggots. And what did you say about the uh, eternal hellfire? Their worms will not die. Worms will not die. Worms just eat, eat, eat. If that's their food. Flies lay their eggs. They eat the garbage. They grow up into a big fly. They fly out of the garbage can. You know? And uh, so God, Jesus was using a word picture here to say, listen, see this place over here? This place called Gehenna? That's what hell will be like. You're going to be the refuse in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven because you disobey God's commandments. You belong in the, in the fire and their worms will not die. And fire will not be quenched because it's a continually burning fire. And the worm, of course, we don't really know exactly what the worm is. It's not a literal worm, I don't think, but <clears throat> most commentaries that I've read believe the worm is your conscience. You see, in hellfire, the sinner who's rejected Jesus, who lived a life of rebellion against him, they will have their conscience perfectly intact, their memory perfectly intact, and they remember, this is probably the worst torment in hell, if you ask me, if this is true, they're, they'll remember every chance they had to trust in Christ. Every chance they had to repent of their sins. Every time they rejected the gospel. Every time they spit in the open air preacher's face or tore up a gospel track or turned a Billy Graham special and heard the truth and turned it off. Or maybe they're sitting in a church service and heard the truth. And they walked on and said, I can't wait for the football game. When's, you, when's your sermon going to be done? They'll remember these things. So Jesus is using a modern day literal situation to say this is what hell is going to be like for you. He's not saying you're actually going to go to a dump, a garbage dump, and you're going to burn, you're going to cease to exist eventually. He's simply saying, he's using a word picture to describe to them what hell will actually be like. And then we see in verses 23 through 26, this issue of reconciliation between two parties. And this goes back to the sun going down in your anger. If you have something against somebody, and you come before God to pray, or come before God to worship or read his word, your heart's not right before him. Even if you're the party who's been offended, you just seek reconciliation. That's what it's talking about in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, he's done something wrong to you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Let's read in uh, Amos chapter 5. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Just to kind of give you an idea where it is towards the end of the Old Testament. Amos chapter 5 and verse 21. We'll see what the the father has to say about Israelites who come to him, come to him with offerings and, and gifts to the altar and see what he has to say about them when they don't have a right heart before him. Uh, Amos 5 and starting at verse 21. 
God says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your string instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. So what should, when people who are bringing an offering before God or coming before God for prayer, they should have righteousness in mind. And when they're coming to offer something before God, but you're not right with someone, maybe you come to pray before God, but you're not right with someone else, God's going to be saying, go reconcile to them. Get right with them. And oftentimes in the open air, we'll hear people say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sin today and tomorrow and every day of my life. I, I, just, I confess every day. I, I, you know, I confess my sins every day. I tell them this truth. I said, listen, if you go to God tonight and you confess your sins, say, God, I'm so sorry for being a fornicator today, and you're planning in your heart to go out and do it again, God will tell you no. He won't forgive you. God only forgives those who repent. And he only accepts the offerings in the Old Testament of those who have righteousness in their heart and want to do justly those are the ones whose offerings he's going to accept. Otherwise, they're, they're sinful in his eyes, offerings they're bringing before him. And Jesus was very, he's very big on this forgiveness between you and people thing. Uh, Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So you're merciful towards others, you obtain mercy yourself. Uh, Matthew six fourteen and 15 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And of course, we, we've talked about it several times in this fellowship, Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. 1835. Uh, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Forgiveness is a very important thing in life. You can't have a relationship with someone unless there's forgiveness there between wrongs being committed. So you can't have a relationship with God unless He forgives you first. You can't have a real relationship with somebody until there's forgiveness for wrongs done, no matter whose part it's been done on. So we're to seek reconciliation, even if we're the offended party. Now, if we're the offending party, uh, verses 25 and 26 apply to that. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge... The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown in the prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you by no means gather until you pay, pay the last penny. Now, he's using an example from the law, the, the justice system at that time, where if someone owed a debt to someone, and they didn't settle this out of court, they were brought to court, they were considered guilty, they go to this debt jail where they had worked there until they paid off every penny. Paid off every last penny. Now, the word for penny here is the Greek word quadron, and it's the actual smallest uh, numerical amount, the smallest coin, when it comes to its value in the Roman system. And a quadron was 164th of a day's wages. 164th. So if we take someone today, in our day and age, let's say someone makes $10 an hour. That's a lot. It's pretty good for this day and age. It's not minimum wage. Quite, quite a bit above minimum wage. Let's say someone makes $10 an hour. In an eight-hour day, they'd make 80 bucks before taxes. Take one sixty-fourth of that, you have dollar twenty-five. 
So it is saying here, until you pay the last penny, you will not get out. So you settle with your adversary while you're on the way with him. Now, let's, let's say that this adversary is a Christian brother. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's see what this has to say about this. Disputes between you and a Christian brother or sister. And Paul spoke pretty hard to the Corinthian church, but it was, it was, it was true here in verses 1 through 11. The first Corinthians six. There any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world will be judged by you, are not are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more are things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not even a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why would you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. He goes on to say, do not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, if you and a brother, Christian brother have a wrong against each other, maybe it's a legal matter even, should you take them to court? Before a non-Christian judge? Before the secular kingdom? The kings of this world and... and and what's it going to do to the name of Jesus Christ? It's going to bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ. To have two Christian brothers arguing about such a small matter, an earthly matter, Paul calls it in this verse, that he can't even go to the church and have brethren in the church, even the least among them, even the least among them, to decide and judge in this matter. That's the way it should be handled, internally. That way no shame is brought to Christ. And if... if if worse comes to worse, if maybe the offending party is not willing to come before the brethren and have them judge and decide, well, then be defrauded. Be cheated. Rather that than shame be brought to the name of Jesus Christ. And we need to always consider these things. Consider what the world, what the world would think when they're seeing our, our witness for Jesus Christ. Verse 27. So now we've talked about murder here. And see how Jesus takes it to the intent of the commandment, which is love. And, you know, insulting shows a murderous heart. Uh, having anger without a cause shows a murderous heart. Having unforgiveness towards your brother shows a, shows a murderous heart. But now we're going to get into adultery of the heart now. Further said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, Already has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I want to read to you one of my favorite Proverbs regarding this adultery issue. It's a warning uh, to sons. Proverbs chapter 6. And we'll start in verse 20. And read through verse 29. My son, keep your father's command. And do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. 
When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife, for touches her shall not be innocent. So when it comes to adultery, we're not just talking about abstaining from the physical act of committing adultery. We're talking about the heart here. Loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor's wife in the proper way, loving each person you come in contact with, not viewing them as anything but a person made in the image of God, who God sent us someone to die for. Shed his blood for them. They can be forgiven of sins. And if they're a Christian, they're a child of God. They're a brother and sister in Christ. And to view them as anything worse than that is probably going to lead to lust. But this world, unfortunately, treats people as their pieces of meat. They're things to be lusted after, coveted after. Don't fall into that. Especially you young men. The world is geared towards dragging you along. Proverbs 5 talks about the, the adulterous woman's tongue is like a dripping of honey. And she tries to allure you. Uh, don't, be allured by, don't be allured by her. You keep your heart pure. Keep your mind pure before God. So if you've lusted in your heart, in God's eyes, you've sinned. You don't have to do the physical act. You've sinned. And the Bible says adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are lustful will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives the solution to the problem here. In verse 29 through verses 30. But before, uh, we've read that array. I want to go to Mark 9. And Mark gives a more explicit account of Jesus' words here. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 43. And Mark generally goes into more detail when it comes to recounting the same situations. Mark 9 and verse 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed, without one hand, rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire, I shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast in the hellfire where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Now Mark talks about one body part that Matthew doesn't talk about. It's the foot. And both the eye, the hands, and the foot can lead to sin. It can lead to lust. You know, in our day and age, with technology the way it is, there's so many ways to lust. Just about any part of your body can cause you to lust. But lusting with your eyes, remember that's one of the, the gates that temptation comes through, the eyes, the ears, the memory, spiritual demonic uh, oppression temptation. And eyes is one of the ways it can come in. But let me just ask you this. Let's say a man is lusting with his eyes, and he plucks one eye out. 
Will that stop him from lusting? Well, he plucks both eyes out. Will that stop him from lusting? Because remember that he has his memory. I think he's lusted about in the past. He's his past memory of lust. So he can always rely on his memory. Can he pluck his brain out? If he plucked his brain out, would he continue to live? Oh, so, is Jesus really saying uh, you need to really pluck your eye out and it's going to solve the problem here? No, he's using a figure of speech called hyperbole, uh, which is spelled H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E. H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E. It's a figure of speech used in English language. Hyperbole. Which, is, which basically means exaggerating to prove a point. Jesus is simply saying, get the sin out of your life and take drastic measures to do it. You know, if my hand is causing me to sin, uh, maybe for the lust situation, people are going click, click, click on the internet and they're looking at pornography. Is cutting off their hand going to stop them from doing it again? They got another hand. They cut off that hand, guess what? There's people who find ways of using mouses and computers without having hands. There's guys, people around the world who don't have hand, arms or legs that can still use the computer. They'll put a headset on, they can actually talk to it. They can use their nose. If people want to lust, they'll find a way. If your foot causes you sin, you're walking to your, your lust. You're walking to wherever you're going, to lust. Uh, Brother Jesse recently got beat up in front of a strip club where men walk into that place to lust. And uh, if I cut off their foot, would that stop them from lusting? No, they got a prosthetic foot they can put on, a fake foot, and they can keep on walking. Cut off the other foot. I can use some crutches. Oh, wheelchair. People want to lust, they'll find a way to lust. It's a heart issue. It's a will issue. And therefore, our heart must be right before God. And if someone finds themselves in a situation where they feel like they can't overcome this sin in their life, well, they need to cry out to God. They need to seek Him. Because uh, even people who are genuine Christians at one point in time can become in bondage to these things by committing it over and over again. And they feel like, I can't stop this. And they begin to despair. And they begin to think, woe is me, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to go to hell and there's no hope for me. Well, it's hope in Christ. But the deeper you go down the rabbit hole, the harder it is to get back out. The deeper you go down the hole of sin, the harder it is to get back out. You must come to the bottom and finally start to climb back out. And that's what people must do with this issue of lust. And remember we talked about recently that this is one of those things that Paul says to flee from. This isn't something that you're supposed to just stand there and you flee from it. Remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife. He fled. He didn't stand there and resist it. He fled for his life. Even when he was falsely accused, he continued to, fly, uh, to flee. Uh, let's, I'm going to finish up this morning and, and give you an exhortation from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, 
sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. <clears throat> when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, so you have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So here's a couple of final questions I'll ask you. According to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, is there a problem with your heart in relation to somebody else? Do you have hatred towards somebody? You say, well, that's, that's a pretty strong word, Kerrigan. Well, do you have strong dislike towards somebody? Guess what? That's the definition of hate. People don't like to use that word hate, but strong dislike is hate. Are you mean towards someone, saying mean words towards them in spite, to put them down or to make fun of them? Well, you're revealing your heart when you do that. Revealing your heart. Do you have something against somebody? Has someone wronged you? If so, are you seeking out reconciliation with them? Are you sitting back and letting bitterness grow in your heart? And let unforgiveness stay in your heart towards them? Remember, unforgiveness, even if you forgive them, the Bible says to seek reconciliation with them. It's your job as the offended party or as the offending party, to seek reconciliation. Lust. Do you have any lust in your heart? They search our hearts. They make sure that whatever things are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, these are the things we think upon. These are the things we think upon. If we think upon these things, we will not give in to lust. We will not give in to these things. And, and doing so by setting up the right boundaries. Remember the doctrine of temptation set up the right boundaries. We're cutting off the hand. We're plucking out the eye. We're cutting off the foot. We're not allowing temptation to come into our life unnecessarily. And we're taking captive every thought that it means for Jesus Christ. Abiding in Him. Okay, does anyone have any, uh, any questions or comments? Or anything else they want to share to add to it? Right. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, reconciliation doesn't mean that the relationship is going to be restored to its former closeness. It means you're seeking out forgiveness from them if you're the offending party, or you're seeking out to let them know that you're forgiving them. You're offering forgiveness to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that, the, that the relationship is going to be as strong as it was in the past. That takes two parties. And uh, surely, I don't know the situation that you're specifically talking about, but if there's sin involved uh, and they're not willing to repent, and the Bible obviously makes it clear uh, that you're to depart from fellowship with them, have no fellowship with that person. And, uh, of course, there must be a biblical, if they're part of a church, must be done in a biblical manner. One person approached them two, then the whole group, if they're not willing to repent, then you treat them like a pagan, the Bible says. Uh, but we're, we're, to do, we're to seek out reconciliation with people, and uh, obviously there, there are situations and times when that's not going to be possible. Uh, but I, I think the matter is really rather seeking it out to do it and um, not having unforgiveness and bitterness towards your heart and your heart towards them. How many times do we let that? I mean, a lot of times in Yeah, I don't. I don't think you ever stop, brother. I don't think you ever stop. Now, reckon trying forgiving someone does not mean that there's going to be the same level of trust. Um, I can forgive someone and not hold it against them any longer, but it doesn't mean I'm going to trust them in the same manner in the future. If someone is a child molester, I may forgive them of that sin in court. They may go to jail because justice takes its, its course and they get out of jail. It doesn't mean I'm going to let them hang around my kids by themselves. That'd be plain foolish. But it doesn't mean I haven't forgiven them either. And I, I think, uh, you know, God's the same with us. If we keep on breaking His commands and sinning against Him, He's not going to trust us with it. If He's been trusted with little, trust with much. The parable of the talents. Uh, but He who is not done with, with what He's been trusted with will be taken away from and given to someone else. Yeah, so there's, there's a trusting issue, and we have to separate that between trusting and reconciliation. We have to be wise in our, in our reconciliation as well. But the point is, if you, have, if you have someone who's offended you, or you offended them, and you're not seeking reconciliation, they have not sought it out, they haven't tried, or tempted, it's a two-sided part thing here. It's not a one-sided. You can't, just one person wants, and the other person does not want to reconcile, you're not going to have reconciliation. Because God wants to reconcile with all sinners, but most won't be reconciled to him. But God's actively seeking it out. Drawing all men near, convicting them of sin, righteous judgment. Preachers go out and preach the gospel. Uh, and there will come a point in time when reconciliation will not be available anymore for some people. When they die, or when Christ comes back. So as long as we're making an attempt, uh, it takes two parties to actually have legitimate reconciliation. So... When it comes to lost family members and friends, I mean, we just need to 
continue pressing on. I mean, I don't think God gives up on them, so why should we? And um, and hopefully through our continual striving with them, wanting to be reconciled to them, uh, they'll see the love of Christ through that. And He wants to do the same thing. He wants to reconcile them to, to the Father through His sacrifice. Sand off your sandals, yeah. Right. Well, I, I mean, it, you, you, you're talking about someone you've tried to reconcile with in the past, and they keep on saying no, 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 and you, you kind of just say, okay, I'm not going to try to reconcile with them. But reconciliation can be done in different ways than just verbal reconciliation. You can pray for them. Because obviously some people, if they don't become Christians, they're never going to reconcile with you. So they're not going to humble themselves. They're not going to repent of what they've done in the matter. And... Um, now, trying to reconcile with someone does not mean the intensity to be the same at all times of reconciliation. It doesn't always mean it needs to be verbal either. Uh, but th- there needs to be... Uh, I mean, I, I, people who are still... We don't know who's reprobate and who isn't, so we're, we're kind of at, at a loss in the situation. Uh, I, I think sometimes we can maybe discern someone might be reprobate by the way they're acting. and uh, You know, if... If a miracle would have happened before them and they said, This is not the power of God, it's the power of the devil, that's a sure sign from Jesus' words that they're reprobate because they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying the work of the Holy Spirit is actually the work of the devil. Uh, so that's a sure sign. But other than that, we don't know who's, who's reprobate and who isn't. So I have a hard time giving up on anyone for those reasons. And uh, saying anyone is definitely reprobate. I mean, people who are probably the closest or maybe. Romans 1 says the homosexuals have a debased mind. Uh, so they're probably pretty close. They're, they're walking the line. Uh, but when it comes to reconciliation between two parties, you know, if, they're, if, they're, if there's, they're both parties of Christians, I don't see why there should be a problem. Um, if there's a difference of opinion on doctrine, I can see a reason to not fellowship as often or as much. You know, you're not going to always want to have that strife, but that doesn't mean you don't love them and don't care for them. It doesn't mean you're going to be as close as you were before either. Uh, but it doesn't mean there's nothing between you that that's going to cause unforgiveness or bitterness between the two parties. The main issue is your heart. Is, you know, right. Bitterness issue. Right. Unforgiveness. Like right. Bitterness, unforgiveness, having murder in your heart. And, uh, I mean, if someone you're not reconciled with, and you've tried, and you find yourself uh, saying nasty things about them, gossiping about them, uh, making fun of them, uh, that's a sure sign that you have, your heart's not right towards them, even if you have tried to reconcile in the past. And uh, we just need to check our hearts to make sure that we're, we're striving. I, I remember when I was a, probably a Christian for about two years at this point, and I remember being really angry at my dad. And this stemmed back before I was a Christian because, you know, my parents divorced, and he was gone, I never saw him. I saw him once a year. And so I had a lot of anger in my heart towards him. And it wasn't until I heard a message preached that, that I realized it. And uh, they had a, you know, a wooden cross at the front of their room, 
and to make it symbolic that you were repenting of this, they had a nail and a hammer, and you just nailed it into the cross to say, I'm done with this. And I went home and called him and, and, and told him that I forgave him and that I'm, you know, I'm sorry. that. And he didn't know I had unforgiveness in my heart towards him, but I needed to let him know that I forgave him everything he had done and, and that I wasn't continuing to hold it against him any longer. And uh, it did wonders in my life because it, it really affected me more, my unforgiveness, than it affected him. And that's what will happen with people who are unforgiven. People you're unforgiving towards sometimes don't even know it. I mean, there may be someone right now who does who has unforgiveness towards me because something I did accidentally, and I don't even know about it, and their unforgiveness is not affecting me. But for some reason, people are unforgiving towards others. They think, well, ha-ha, I'm going to get it back, and I'm not going to forgive them. And this you know, thought in their mind, I'm not going to forgive them, and that's my way of getting back at them. You're not, you're not hurting them, you're hurting yourself by having unforgiveness. And my relationship with my dad has been a lot different since then, but my sister, who's a year older than me, She's had problems ever since the time my parents got divorced when she was nine and I was eight. And she still, to this day, it seems like she blames her problems on that situation. Now, my dad has some responsibility, of course, but she's an adult now. She's accountable for herself. And I've told her so many times, you need to forgive him. And she's over this from nine to 33, has allowed this root of bitterness to grow in her heart. And it's going to take a big plow, a big forklift to pull this tree, yank it out of a heart by the roots to get it out. And the longer you let unforgiveness go on, the bigger the tree gets, the harder it is to take it down and take all the root system out. It keeps growing and growing in your heart. That's why you should not let the song go down on your anger. Take care of it right away. Yes. Right. Right. It's their fault. Yeah, it's their fault. It's their job to come to me. And we need to be real careful of that. Now, I tell you, I think that the biggest picture I've said this many times that 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 I get of Christ's forgiveness is from my wife. Because she's had to forgive me more than anybody else in this world. She had to deal with my problems more than anyone else in this world. All the time I've been impatient with her, that I've yelled at her, that I've been mean to her, or said something wrong to her, she's had to forgive me. And she continues to love me and live with me and to deal with me and uh, and to continue to love me and forgive me. And in a, in a relation, that's why that's why it's always a picture of Christ in the church. He forgives us. Our spouses forgive us. And uh, when you have close siblings, that'll be a, a good picture too if they forgive you like they're supposed to proper way because oftentimes you'll offend your brother or sister and they need to be able to forgive you too.